And again, that's Romans 9, 22 to 24. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Uh, may God bless the reading of his word. Minister Taylor will now preach to us on the topic, the rich, glorious, and particular love of God. Minister Taylor. Good morning, Crossbridge. Thank you, Lynn. It's good to be with you this morning to preach God's word and to worship with you. Uh, I'm Minister Taylor. I'm the, the guy's youth minister. It's been a little while since I've come to preach, so I always feel that need to introduce myself. Well, as we uh, begin this sermon today, I, I want to just go before the Lord once again in prayer. So would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word that makes us wise to salvation, that equips us for every good work that you have called us to, that the person, that the man or woman of God would be perfect and equipped for every good work. I pray as I preach your word this morning that I would be faithful to what you have said would the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight? And Holy Spirit, would you work among us that your word would not return void, but that it would bear fruit in our hearts and in our lives to your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, growing up, I didn't have the chance to go on many vacations. Uh, my family, maybe once or twice, um, went to the, the Smoky Mountains as a kid. When I was like one years old, we went to Florida, and uh, we, we, we just really didn't get a chance to travel very much. Um, to this day, I'm the only one in my family who has ever lived outside the state of Ohio uh, or has traveled abroad, which is a little bit crazy. Uh, the first time I got to travel abroad, I was 13. There's a bunch of circumstances that, that led up to me actually being able to do that. Uh, but I, I went to China, and I stayed in China for uh, about a month. And most of the time that I was there, I was actually staying at a martial arts boarding school uh, right outside of Jinzhou. But in the last five days that I was there, we were able to travel around and sightsee a little bit. And we went to this place here. It's called the Yellow Mountain. Uh, the picture does not do justice. This was back in 2007 before modern technology, uh, though the camera's not too bad, at least. Um, but it doesn't do it justice. If you go online, you can look up and you can see some of the other beautiful sights of the, the Yellow Mountain. Uh, but really, to go in person is what will really move your heart to see how beautiful it really is. But I would say for me, you know, it, it was something as I would go, I would just, I would stand in awe because you can just like look over and you can see these thousand foot drops as you go and look over off the cliffside. And, you know, this is China back in 2007, so it's not like the past now where, you know, uh, most of the time when you go on the mountains, there's like the things that keep you from going off to the edge. You can go and look right over at the edge. That's where the, the one picture on the left is. I was like looking over the ledge, uh, taking the picture. But my, my group was going, and we were just, we were in awe of the beautiful sights of the mountains. And we had a tour guide, and one thing that I know now that I've been able to uh, travel a little bit more, there are good tour guides and there are not so good tour guides. And one thing that often separates good tour guides away from bad tour guides is good tour guides love the place that they are showing around. And one thing that really vividly stuck in my memory from going to the Yellow Mountain is the tour guide was very meh. <laughs> it's the best way to describe it. 
We would go and we would like look over at the cliffs and we'd be like, oh, this is so beautiful. We'd see the mountains moving through and we would just stand in awe. But the tour guide, this was before like smartphones, but he was just like sitting back in the bench and being like totally unmoved. And one person in our group asked the tour guide, he was like, how do you feel coming and seeing these sites every day? And the tour guide was like, well, I've been doing this job now for three years and so I, I just, I don't really feel anything anymore. It's just ordinary. And I think that many of us can relate. We can think about other situations where we have put ourselves and seen something extraordinary, maybe about the creation, uh, about God's creation, seeing the ocean or seeing a mountain range or the northern lights or, or something else. And, you know, maybe the first time that we see it, it feels wonderful to us. It, it inspires awe. But if we go back and see it time and time again, we start to become numb to it. We start to become dull. The extraordinary things that we see start to become ordinary to us. And what a dangerous thing that is. What about the things of God? Have we allowed the things of God, the extraordinary truths, to become ordinary to us? As we go before the Lord in our morning prayers, if, if we do go before the Lord in our morning prayers and read his word, do we read it as though we are just reading another text? Do we come here and worship every Sunday and go through the motions where our hearts remain unmoved? Do we talk about the love of God of just saying, God loves us? I remember we were at a missions trip not too long ago and there was a guy uh, up in Maine that was, he was uh, a little bit different, but he was just going around, God loves you, God loves you. Are our hearts unmoved to the extraordinary things of God? This is a danger. It's not something new. A uh, theologian of yesteryear very accurately proclaimed it. He's giving a sermon to theology students, and he says, we are frequently told indeed that the great danger lies precisely in his constant contact with divine things. They may come to seem common to him because they are customary. Have we allowed the extraordinary things of God to be customary to us? This message that B.B. Warfield gave was to theology students, but I think for us, many of us can relate as well. I think we, as a church, as Crossbridge, a lot of times we're facing this danger. I know that because a lot of times, you know, I, I'm sitting with the youth and I, I see the youth out on their phones as we're having a survey or something like that, not calling you guys out. But here's the thing, like, I don't correct you when I'm sitting next to you if you're on your phone, even if you're playing games, because the action is not as important as the heart behind it. But the heart that can come and stand before the preaching of God's word and remain totally unmoved is a heart in a dangerous place. A heart that can open up the words of God and feel nothing as we read them is a heart in a dangerous place. Throughout my sermon, my goal is to communicate this main point. God shows a particular love to his people which should awaken our hearts to the gloriousness of God and his rich love for us to deepen our spiritual affections and fight against the extraordinary becoming ordinary. It's going to take a little bit of, of theological heavy lifting uh, to, to get to this point, and I'm not going to be able to, to go through everything that we, we see in the text today. As Paul's 
really building up on a very long argument that he started all the way back in, in Romans chapter 1. There's, there's a lot here. But I, I hope that by examining this text, by thinking through this truth, we would see God's glorious love and that would awaken our hearts, that it would move our hearts a little bit to have eyes to see the extraordinary nature that we see. What is it that will ultimately uh, awaken our hearts to the extraordinary nature of the things of God? Ultimately, it must lie, the answer must lie in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and in the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit and through his sanctifying instrument, the Word of God. As the Word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of bone and marrow, and no creature is hidden from his sight. The Word of God pierces our hearts and identifies what is in our heart. Not only just the behavior that we see on the outside, but the Lord sees the heart. So if it is the Word of God that will awaken our hearts to the extraordinary nature of the things of God, why is it that I have chosen to you to preach a sermon, a passage that is pretty complicated, a little bit controversial, and arguably raises more questions than it gives answers. Well, I've chosen this passage, one, because I was given the chance to uh, pick a passage, thanks Pastor Jeff for that, Uh, but also because I think in this passage we see something very great about God and his love. It doesn't obviously tell us about the love of God, but as we parse through, as we think through, it reveals the jealous nature of God's love, his, his rich nature, the glorious nature, the particular nature of God's love. And when we think about this, I, I hope the Holy Spirit will use it as an instrument to awaken our hearts. So I have just two simple points this morning. First one is, God shows a glorious love to his people. God shows a glorious love to his people. If I were to paraphrase uh, Romans 9, 22 through 24, I would say something like this. God has gone to great lengths to show how great his love is for his people, namely by orchestrating all things to that end, to the end of showing his great love to his people. Even God's wrath against those who persist in their rebellion is to reveal how glorious his love is for us who trust in Christ, whom God chased down to change our once rebellious heart that we may trust in him. The NLT translates the passage this way. It says, in the same way, even though God has the right to show his anger and his power, he is very patient with those on whom his anger falls, who are destined for destruction. He does this to make the riches of his glory shine even brighter on those whom he shows mercy, who are prepared in advance for glory. And we are among those whom he has selected, both from the Jews and from the Gentiles. I want to encourage you to open up your Bibles and read it once again from the, the ESV version. The ESV uh, says this, What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience Vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he has called, not only from the Jews, but also the Gentiles. Now, as we come to this passage, one of the questions that may 
immediately jump out to us is what is or what are these vessels of wrath that Paul is talking about. I think when he talks about this, the, the, the wrath, uh, the, the anger, the power in which God is uh, distributing or, or showing towards these vessels, that is a description of God's eternal judgment and hell. It is a, a picture of God's justice, of his judgment and punishing sinners eternally in hell. But also as we think about what is this, this vessel and, and how do we understand this, how do we reconcile this in our mind, especially as it says that they are prepared beforehand for destruction. This is the, the question of predestination, of the goodness of God, the justice of God. I think one thing that we need to keep in mind as we come to this is not to read this passage selectively, to only look at this passage, but remember what Paul has said throughout the whole book of Romans. Of course, I'm not going to be here for three hours preaching to you the entire book of Romans, but just a few things to keep in mind. In Romans chapter 1, it says that the, right, the, uh, the justice of God has been poured out against, uh, the wrath of God has been poured out against the unrighteousness of man, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. By their unrighteousness suppress the truth, that they worship and serve created things rather than the Creator. One thing that we see in this is that what this means for us as we read these vessels of wrath, it points to their willful, continual persistence in their rebellion. It's not something that it was just like, oh, in there. That they continue to persist and persist on. They exchange the glory of God. They worship and serve created things rather than the Creator. And in Romans 1, it says, because of their sin, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts. So we see a, a very similar dynamic in Romans 1, as we do in Romans 9, of willful, sinful people persisting in their rebellion and the sovereignty of God. Because of their persistence in their rebellion, God gave them up. Because of their persistence in sin, they are vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. In Romans 2, Verses 1 through 5, it talks about presuming upon the kindness of God. And that passage, basically, it has in mind someone who continues go on to go on sinning. Uh, because just to say, oh yeah, God's kindness will cover over me. His grace will cover over me. It says in that passage that these ones that are presuming upon the kindness of God are storing up wrath for themselves. Again, language of volition, of persistence and rebellion of willful choosing to disobey God. In Romans 3, verses 10 through 12, it says that all of us have turned aside, have turned away from God, that no one does good. Again, language of choice, of volition, of persistence in sin. I could go on and on. In our home group not too long ago, we studied Romans, and one of the things that we observe from the book of Romans is that Paul's message is, to paraphrase, we suck. We sin. We turn away from God. In our natural state, we are not neutral when it comes to the things of God. In our natural state, because of the fall, we are enemies of God, and we willfully, in our natural state, persist as enemies of God and in our rebellion. 
This is what Paul is talking about here. If I had a lot more time, I would dive into this aspect of enduring with much patience vessels of wrath as we see the kindness of God. But what's the purpose of it all? What's the purpose of it all? God's wrath against rebellious sinners who persist in rebellion serves to show how glorious God's grace and love is for those who are saved. You can think about it this way. How would you know glorious forgiveness unless you knew what it meant to need to be forgiving or to need to be forgiven? How would you know what it is to experience pleasure if you did not experience pain? How would you know light if it were not for darkness? How would you know the glories of God's mercy and grace if you did not know how severe his justice, wrath, and judgment? This is Paul's point. Jonathan Edwards in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of the Angry God, very vividly proclaims this truth, and he says, the fiery pit of God's wrath serves as the backdrop against which the brilliance of his grace and love shines even brighter upon those whom he has chosen for salvation. He goes on even farther, like, like a parched wanderer in a desert, when he finally encounters a refreshing oasis, the sinner saved by grace understands the depths of God's mercy precisely because he has tasted the bitterness of God's righteous judgment. Friends, have you tasted the bitterness of God's righteous judgment? He is inviting you today to come into his arms, to come and place your trust in Christ that you would not finally experience the bitterness of his judgment. As the sermon is about God's love, you might be thinking and especially if you're familiar with Paul's greater argument in Romans 9, you may be thinking, if God's wrath against those who persist in their rebellion is meant to show how glorious God's love is towards those who his mercy shines, those who are God's people, then does God love those who persist in their rebellion? Or to say it another way, does God love the non-elect? John Frame says this about it, that the short answer is yes, a longer answer is is here. The full story is this, God sent his son with both hypothetical and categorical intentions. Categorically, Christ died only for his elect. Hypothetically, he died so that if anyone at all should believe, he would be saved. His death makes the hypothetical statement true, so Christ died to guarantee the salvation of the elect and to provide an opportunity of salvation for all. While it is very true that God indeed loves everyone, oftentimes we tend to focus on the extent and universality of God's love, the possibility of God's love for anyone who would receive it, and those are all very true. Those are all glorious. The fact that Anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. That is a glorious truth, and that is something that is true for all of us today. If we have not experienced his salvation, anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone who would turn away from their sin and trust in Jesus will be saved. But what God, what, what, sorry, what Frame would call the hypothetical category 
is this hypothetical universal love towards everyone. And when we tend to focus on this, when we focus on the possibility, the universalness of God's love, we tend to miss a very special, the particular aspect of God's love that he shows to his people. And an aspect of God's love which I find to be moving, something to change our hearts. And so the second point that I have, God, God, first point, God shows a glorious love. And the glorious love should awaken us, awaken our hearts to the extraordinary nature of the things of God, particularly his love. The second point I want to say is God's love is primarily particular. God's love is primarily particular. And so that raises the question in Romans 9, what then does vessels of mercy prepared for glory mean? A vessel of mercy prepared for glory is one whom God has chosen to show his particular love in the incarnation of Christ, the atonement of Christ, and the regeneration of the Holy Spirit. It is what Paul also says in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 6, that blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. It is God's particular love that he saw us from eternity past, before the foundation of the world. And he said that, I will send my son to die for you. You could remember Romans 5 for this. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. God's love shines upon us not because we first loved him, but because he first loved us. Our hearts respond to the gospel call because the Holy Spirit is at work in our hearts, moving us to see the gospel call as beautiful and worthy. I think I've probably gone into a lot of theological depth thinking through all these different concepts and so I want to share a story, maybe to, to answer this question that is a little bit more relatable, a little bit more accessible uh, than all the ways that I tend to explain things. So last summer, we were, uh, the, the youth, we went on a mission trip with YWAM to Kona, Hawaii. Um, and we were, one of the last days, I don't know, it was maybe the second to last day of uh, the mission trip, we were doing... Um, what do you call it, uh, street evangelism. Uh, street evangelism is when you just go out and approach somebody at random out on the street and share the gospel with them. And so we were going through training, uh, preparing to, to do this. And I, I remember very specifically in, in the training, uh, the, the leaders were saying like, hey, you know, as you go out, you need to um, be careful not to approach anyone who is like drunk or high or otherwise seems dangerous because we were in an area where there were a lot of homeless people. Uh, and so before we went out, I was partnered with uh, an 18-year-old and a 15-year-old uh, young girls uh, from Texas and also from 
uh, San Francisco, the youngers from San Francisco. And as we went out, we decided that each of us would pick somebody to, to talk to, to share the gospel with. And so the, the first person that we met was a guy from Micronesia. Uh, he was sitting out in the parking lot just waiting for his friend to come pick him up, to give him a ride. Uh, and so we, we talked with him, and we found out uh, that he actually was a Christian, that he came to Christ through uh, a Baptist chaplain when he was in prison in Micronesia. Uh, but yeah, he was there, and, and he was very encouraged. We prayed together. Uh, and he was, yeah, he, he felt encouraged that we came and talked to him. Uh, the second guy we, we, we met and we shared the gospel with was uh, this guy from upstate New York who had left the hustle and bustle and the busy life of the Northeast for the aloha, uh, the, the chill lifestyle of Hawaii. Uh, he was a, a convictional agnostic, and he was like, oh yeah, you know, you guys at, at YOM, you're good people and everything, but yeah, that's, that's not for me. But he was happy to, to share his life story with us and just have small talk and so forth. And so these were the two guys that uh, the young women decide to approach to share the gospel with. And so I, I went last as far as uh, who I picked to share the gospel with. And we went and approached. As we were walking along, we found two guys on the shore, uh, two guys on the shore fishing. And so for me, I, I have a lot of qualms, I guess you could say, with street evangelism. I, I see God working in those conversations, but at the same time, I think there's much better ways to share the gospel, namely by relationships and actually loving people. It's hard to love someone in a very short time frame. But we approach these fishermen, and um, the hardest thing for me is not in a conversation, not generally bringing up the gospel, but actually just starting a conversation. It feels pretty awkward to me. But maybe that's just because I'm awkward. I don't know. But anyway, we approached these fishermen on, this, on the, the shore, and, you know, I just started the conversation very simply. Is anything biting? You know, easy way to, to start a conversation, right? As we got a little bit closer, I, I asked of that from maybe like 10 or 15 feet away. As we got a little bit closer, I noticed, oh, hey, there's an open beer bottle on the, uh, on the ground next to him. And then one of the guys comes over and pulls out a switchblade and pops a switchblade out and like starts saying something a little bit incoherent. And I'm thinking, oh boy. Uh, yeah, because again, the, the training before. But, but I, I've had a little bit of experience both with people who are tipsy and also of sharing the gospel or having conversations with homeless people. And so I you know, cautiously observed and uh, realized that he was just trying to mess with us, that he was just being goofy. And so we continued to have a conversation with him. The girls kind of like jumped back, especially when the guy pulled out the knife. Uh, but it was just, you know, it was a knife or his, his fishing tools and so forth. But we, we started talking to these guys and uh, we found out that they had been living uh, on the streets for some 20 years. One of them grew up in Hawaii, grew up on one of the other islands. Uh, another guy, he, he grew up out west somewhere. I think he said Nevada or Utah. I don't remember uh, exactly. Uh, but we started sharing the, the gospel with them and just talking with them, hearing their life story. And one of the guys, this, the same guy that pulled out the knife on us, uh, he started talking about like some um, mythology kind of thing of like, oh yeah, there's these gods over there and they're like messing with people or something like that. Uh, then the other guy, I remember very... Uh, very clearly was like, oh, that's, that's ridiculous. There's, there's only one God, and he doesn't give a crap about us. Or he said something, something along those lines. And uh, I, I responded to the, the guy that was like, oh, yeah, there's only one God. He doesn't care about us. I was like, do you think God loves you? And he responded, oh, of course God loves us. That's why he sent his son to die for us. Right? So, so he had heard the gospel. He was familiar with it. 
but his response was very, you know, unmoved. Very unmoved. He was desensitized to it. And so we, we kept talking for about 30 minutes, and uh, towards the end of the conversation, I, I asked the guys, I was like, hey, is, can, can we buy you something to, to eat and something to drink? There was a store that was right there. Uh, of course, one of the guys is like, oh, yeah, can you buy us a beer? <laughs> um, I was like, no, I'm not, not going to do that. But we, we went and we bought him. Uh, we bought the guys uh, sandwiches and, and some, something to drink. Um, the, the guys had shared, one of the guys in particular had shared, like, life on the streets for him wasn't all that bad. But one of the things that he found particularly challenging was good health care. And he had, like, uh, bandages on, his, on one of his legs and he had said that he had a, a, bit, a bad infection from, that was caused by staff or something. And so as we were walking back uh, from the, the store to, to give him the food, he was cleaning his infection with like a dirty cloth that he was using for fishing, just like the ocean water, and uh, he was cleaning it. And uh, the 15-year-old girl, he, she went up to him. She, she was very well prepared. She had like a fanny pack. Uh, with like Neosporin and like Band-Aids and stuff like that. Uh, crazy, but she's, yeah, just super well-prepared. Maybe that was just the grace of God, but she says she's always well-prepared like that. And she goes up to the guy, and she offers to help clean his wound. So just picture that scene for a minute. 15-year-old girl coming from privilege, well-educated, smart, very well-prepared, the world of potential in front of her and a homeless dude who's been on the streets for longer than she's been alive. Not only that, a homeless guy who just 30 minutes ago was trying to scare her by popping out his, his knife. And she bends down next to him and starts helping care for his wound. And after she cared for his wounds, she stayed kneeling down next to him and prayed for him uh, that he would find healing, and that he would know God. It's a little bit of a picture of what the love of God is for us. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve Jesus to come. <laughs> we don't deserve any of the kindness that God extends to us. In the same way that this homeless man didn't deserve the kindness of this young girl, not only because of their gaping distance in status, or that he was kind of a creepy old dude and tried to scare her a little bit ago, but still she knelt next to him, cared for his wounds, and prayed for him. Uh, at the end of her praying, that the guy was in tears and he said, uh, both of them were like, you guys are good kids. Uh, I don't think that that moment led him to be saved, but perhaps it was one small step that God was working on in his heart uh, to bring him to faith. I don't know. Reminds me of what C.S. Lewis says. It says, to love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything in your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. You want to make sure of keeping it intact. You must give it to no one, not even an animal. Lock it up safe in a casket or a coffin of your selfishness, but in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, 
irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. See, us, in our human nature and our sinfulness, sometimes we like, might wonder or ask the question, like, why did God need to send his son to die on the cross for us? Why couldn't he just snap his finger and fix the problem of sin and brokenness and evil? So it's a big question. But one of the things that it reveals is that oftentimes in our sinfulness, we want heaven apart from Christ. We want salvation apart from obedience. We want the presence of God, the gifts of God, apart from the presence, meaning him being with us. God in his love did not stand as some distant deity that just snaps and tries to fix things. But he became flesh. He entered down into our brokenness. He made himself vulnerable because of his great love. It's kind of like the song says, as I ran my hellbound race, indifferent to the cost, you look up- looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. Christ enters our brokenness and loves and vulnerability. Or the song, Reckless Love, it says, when I was your foe, still your love fought for me. You have been so, so good to me. When I felt no worth, you paid it all for me. You have been so, so kind to me. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Oh, it chases me down, fights till I'm found, leaves the 99, and I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Still, you give yourself away. Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. Reckless, I think not. Meticulous purposeful. Before the foundation of the world, before God created anything, he knew you, and he loved you, and he paid a great price that you would know his love. Why are our hearts so often unmoved by the extraordinariness of God's love? Why do we often feel like it's so ordinary and so unmoving to us. Many reasons I could probably speculate, but today, the rest of this time, I I just want to invite you to reflect upon this truth with a new heart. Reflect upon this truth and, and just see the extraordinariness of God's love. Would you pray for me? Would you pray with me? God, we repent of allowing the extraordinary truths of who you are, of what you've done, of your extraordinary love to become ordinary to us. Holy Spirit, work in our hearts. Dispel our thoughts in the darkest night that we would see your love, that we would not doubt your love, but that we would see it as beautiful Would you give us eyes to see all the ways that you have worked in our lives to bring us to faith? Would you work in our hearts now that we would put our trust in you, that we would come to you? 
God, we know that you stand with arms open, ready to receive us. So God, we come into your arms now. God, let this be my prayer this morning from Ephesians chapter 3. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you, Crossbridge, CBCGB, all of us, to be strengthened with the power through his Spirit in our inner beings, so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. That each of us, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That each of us may be filled with all the fullness of God. God, this is our prayers. Give us new eyes to see your extraordinariness. We pray in Jesus' name.